Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, welcome to the 312th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Caleb King, Cal Barnes, and Daphne. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enloe. Today we've got Tony Yacenda back on the show. It's been kind of a while, but it's good to catch up with our old pal Tony. You might remember him from creating and directing American Vandal, a ton of Little Dicky music videos, and also he directs a number of episodes for Little Dicky's show Dave on FX. He's got a new show coming out on Paramount Plus called Players. It comes out June 16th. And we talked to him about designing a scene. What makes a scene good? what his approach is, and we kind of walk through the three different sort of styles of production that he tends to frequent. He does his mockumentary kind of where he's part of the show running team, one where he has basically complete control, then where he's in a more traditional scripted style television show with Dave, where there are showrunners to answer to and kind of other personalities, and then commercials and music videos where it's much more of a prescriptive and kind of reined in sort of experience. Yeah, it's really fun. I always like talking to Tony. We really get in deep on cameras, performances, working with actors. I love the stuff, all the craft stuff you ever wanted to hear. You will get in this episode. Anyhow, before we hear from Tony, we'd love to remind you that we have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash JustShootItPod is where you can go. If you want to support the podcast, you can give us a dollar a month, $4 a month, $10, and even $15, which will give you a Just Shoot It podcast hat, which I will personally mail to you. And there's a 22% chance that my daughter will draw some weird things on the box. It really makes a big difference. It not only helps us pay for our editor and all the other expenses we have, keeping the show going, but also it keeps us going and keeps us motivated. And so check it out. Patreon.com slash just shoot upon. We appreciate you. Before we get to the rest of the show, we have some iTunes reviews. That's another way that you can help the show. We have one says authentic and informative entertaining. This is what filmmakers need these days. Matt and Oren are honest and transparent with their show. It makes my day every week. I wish it was a daily podcast. If you're a filmmaker worth their salt, you'll listen to just shoot it pod. Hey, Thanks, hey. Zoomrix. Yes. Pretty good. Pretty good. Steven Spielberg. Hope you're listening. Best filmmaking podcast out there. The rigorous attention to the daily mechanics of directing, writing, producing, coupled with the sincerity and passion from Matt and Oren are unparalleled. Listen to them, listen to their guests, and you will be able to not only make a film, but you will have a strong sense of how to navigate the wild entertainment industry. So if you want to help out the show, go ahead and hop onto iTunes and write us a review. And now on with 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. The show. We're here with Tony Ascenda. Back on the show. Welcome back, Tony. It's been too long. Thanks for having me. But this is number three. This feels good. Hey, it's yeah. three, right? I was, or four. I think you were on at least one panel, right? Or were you on two? Oh, I was on the panel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, this yeah. is my fourth episode. But yeah, I think the first time you came, you talked about Save That Money, little dicky video. My favorite thing I remember from that, two fun things. One was that you were trying to make this video, music video for no money. And like one of the scenes, you have like the Lamborghini or some, what car did you guys have? Yeah, we, we got a Lamborghini. You had this idea of a montage of him trying to get Lamborghinis from all these different places and them saying no. And the first place he went to said yes. And so then you had to yeah. find other places to say no in order to make, <laughs> make it work. I'm happy you remember that. Yeah. yeah. People, people ask, like, did you fake it? And I'm like, no, but like, we really did do it, but we had to show the process first. Yeah. Well, like, like you any documentary, you're, you're kind of um, reordering, resequencing things every once in a while. But the other thing that I remember, I feel like when you made that video, it was like kind of really the common knowledge was that like a YouTube video should not be over like three or four minutes. You know, and I don't remember how long saved that money is, but isn't it? It was like nine minutes. minutes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you told us that you had this big debate with your whole team about like, 
is nine minutes way too long. And everyone's like, it's too long. It's just like, no one is going to watch a nine minute video. And then everyone did. Nowadays, it doesn't even seem like a relevant fight. But in those days, like whenever yeah. that was like five years ago, if you made a long video, people will tell you that that it's unwatchable. And we'll get to the the genius of Dave Bird <laughs> when we get to the the scene design segment. But I do remember like, I was fighting with some of, you know, the label, like articulating why a longer video for this might work. But even I was like, I don't know, Dave, maybe we should cut here, here and here. And Dave had the confidence and just like the incredulity to be like, why would we not put the best version of this out? (laughs) Is it worse at seven minutes? Like, yeah, I guess, I guess it is. And he's, uh, he, he's the guy who was always like gives you the confidence. He's like my t- my creative Tyler Durden. <laughs> like, what would Dave do yeah, fighting yeah. with a network in this situation? What I love about that mentality is that that is basically the thesis for the television show. Do you know totally. what I mean? <laughs> like, absolutely. Like, that yeah. television show is that's that's him. Like the the first time I met him. It was before Let Me Freak that was, or, or before Save That Money. Uh, I did two videos before that. The first one I did was like Let Me Freak. And he was like about to release this album that Save That Money was is called Professional Rapper. And he was like showing me songs on it. I'm like, oh my God, this guy is so unbelievably talented. And he's like, this is just my first album. This isn't going to be like the album that makes me content. And I remember being like, what are you talking about? You're like a YouTube rapper. Of course you're not going to be Kanye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he yeah. always had Who do you think you are, Aquafina? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, being like the biggest, the biggest star in the world and had no reservation of like censoring. He felt no need mm-hmm. to censor it in mm-hmm. a way that I think like the three of us here yeah, oh, no, no sense of embarrassment or shame. Yeah. yeah, he's like simultaneously like the most self-aware human on this earth and the least self-aware. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like it's like Larry David meets Drake. Like the, <laughs> it's both like the, he's a small dick pun, but also like I'm the biggest genius in the world. There's a scene in Dave. I don't know if you directed this episode or not, but where he's like on the toilet and someone's like. Oh, you're not using like the the seat cover, and he's like, "Oh, that thing isn't that for like women's periods or something?" <laughs> like, just the fact that this like grown man does not know what a toilet seat cover is, but he thinks it's like a woman's like, you know, accessory of some sort is just like like that makes sense, you know, that he wouldn't know that. But at the same time, he's it, like, "It was the for change the changing diapers thing." <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't direct that episode. <laughs> but he still is so aware of like where he is in his career and what people think of him. And then sorry to geek out on Dave, but the other my other favorite moment in that whole show so far. And I, again, I don't know if you directed this episode, but it's like when he's like putting on uh, his his performance for his like girlfriend and his roommate or, and their friend, um, you know, to show them what he's going to do at this like bar mitzvah or something. And they're like, OK, cool. So that's like this is like where you're starting off. And like, like, you're going to keep working on this. And he's like, uh, well, no, like that, that was what I was going to do. But apparently, you know, you don't think it's good enough. And I feel like, like every pitch I have is like, (laughs) they're like, oh, cool. That's a great starting place. And you're like, well, well, that, that's the ending place. (laughs) That's the whole thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah um, it is. It is funny to get like that's always the with script and I think like in the pre-pro phase we're always like no this is this is really good and other people aren't seeing it and they're and rightfully so and you have to do the work and then we are on the other side in like post where you see the first cut of something and you're like oh my god this is horrific yeah. i can't <laughs> let anybody else see this what have i this. done if like you let somebody in and get some feedback you'd probably be okay but it's funny how that changes between like the script where i think it's great and it's not, and then the, and the yeah. first edit. But it's like you don't see a lot of shows about the creative process in the way that Dave covers it, you know. And I, I and wonder it's, if it's yeah, relatable. They, they to do it in such a thoughtful people. way. I think mm-hmm. I am always impressed with people who can see a script that's really written very dryly. You know, where the jokes aren't super hard, you know, they're maybe character based or or just kind of like performance based, right? Like a lot of Dave is, where you still get it. Right. And sometimes that's just the craft of writing. Sometimes like the pros can really like bring that out, but it's not always there. I feel like I've read plenty of great screenplays where I was like, oh, after you see it produced, you're like, yeah, now now I get it. Why didn't I see that on the page? You know what I mean? Is it just that everyone's already keyed in to what's happening in Dave and we know the voice of the show? And and, and so you, you have a pilot at least to reference or. Were there are there ever instances where it's like, is this joke sharp enough? And then you realize, of course it is. Yeah, and then there are times where you get on set and you realize it wasn't, and you kind sure. of need to find it. The writers' room is a bunch of really smart people who know how to write to Dave's voice, and mm-hmm. Dave is such a strong, active like captain of his own ship, and knows like. These are the types of scenes that work. I'll be able to make this funny. So even if like you get to the page and some joke that Dave wrote for himself isn't really landing or some joke that another writer wrote for, for Emma or Allie isn't really working. You can find it out because like the bones are there. Like Mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. that's the common thread on both shows that I've worked for is like, you really need, the, a smart writer's room to make sure there's structure there's mm-hmm. there's a reason for each of these scenes to mm-hmm. to exist and that there's like a comedic driving force to a scene but then you know there's some scenes that read really funny that fall flat and if any of us knew how to read a script and and fully translate what was good and what was bad and and see how it was going to end up we'd be and you wouldn't need to shoot it. Hollywood. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember uh, our previous guest, Micah Bitzerman Blue, who was one of the writers on Transparent. He said that, like, from every scene, they would just go, they would, they would think about the feeling that you want to get from that scene, and that would just drive everything. I thought that was like an interesting way to think about scenes. You know, it's kind of, I mean, similar to what you're saying. Like, what, like, they're not just a purpose. It doesn't doesn't need to just be a plot device but like there's some some feeling we're supposed to get from the scene and like if on a good show you it's clear for each scene and you can get that and, and i think from a performance point of view and a directing point of view you can probably latch onto that yeah for sure those are the conversations that you always have to have like at video village if you're lucky enough to have like other writers that mm-hmm. were there and like well we got this episode and in six but 
if this scene is is too dark, we need them mm-hmm. to like hit this low point in Act Three. So they need mm-hmm. to like all the writers are kind of like looking at all of everybody's trajectory and and trying to remember the the forest above mm-hmm. the trees, and uh, that's that's a a a fun challenge but i've actually gotten to the point where you're having those what's the emotion of this scene or what's the i've gotten to the point where there are some actors that i think are like really have really know the story really know the script that are at like the top of the call sheet on a lot of uh in a lot of scenes and i'll and my direction has gotten like super transparent where i'm like look the audience needs to this mm-hmm. is what the audience needs to feel from this scene. They need to feel like you guys are friends going into the scene. Then he says this thing and mm-hmm. you, and I just like walk them through the, uh, the it's almost like experience. A, a structural note rather than like what their motivation is or something. Right. And I've had mixed results yeah. with it, but yeah. there are certain actors like if, if a, if an actor looks at me like, why the fuck are you telling me this? And then mm-hmm. it doesn't like, I will stop with that. But I've had a few actors that like kind of respond to that. And that mm-hmm. is like the most simple and most important data I can give them. And and that's been fun with, uh, with a couple of actors I've worked with lately. That, that's really interesting. And I know we're, we're way off on a tangent, <laughs> but I'm going to keep poking at it. Um, do you, is there any sort of through line to the sort of actors that, uh, that respond to that sort of, conversation to that sort of direction is it do they have more ownership in the story do they have a writing background you know are they self-generating themselves or or is it just kind of the luck of the draw it's i think when they come to me and they're like okay but why why would i say this if i'm saying this in episode eight when they're when they're not just like talking about the scene at hand because uh, some actors just they just want to focus on the performance in, in this in this scene, but when an actor is seeking that kind of macro direction, then I feel like, in my experience, that's an indicator that they're more into like seeing how the full story plays out, and I give them that like extra data. It, it might sound like I'm giving advice or something, but one of the actors that I've used that with, who I think it's worked really well with, I think kind of rolls their eye and thinks it's a happy move. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's not something, you know, yeah. Stan would do or something like that. But yeah. hey, it's fucking, it's working for we're, him. We're happy to get advice. And I feel like that your all the performances and your things that I've seen in the last like however many years have been pretty amazing so either they're working despite you or because of you let's hope it's it's because of me but i don't know it's a win-win man it's a win-win i think it's an interesting way to look at uh, directing actors you know a lot of times you hear actors say you want them to trust the director because you're the one that that is like, like that's why like very famous actors don't want to work with like first-time directors because they want to work with someone that they know they can rely on to tell them if like what they're seeing is good and as a director, you're really just kind of translating what the audience is. And so I personally, I, I always talk to actors. They say like, hey, we're going to do this medium shot. We're going to frame you like this. And, you know, if you turn like around here and the light hits you, it's going to be really nice for that part when you're happy. We're kind of like building these different elements together to to give this sensation, you know, that mm-hmm. like something, something super exciting is happening. And like one of the reasons I do that is 
it, especially when I have like nothing else to say, I feel like it's just an easy thing to tell, to talk to actors about is like what, how you're shooting the scene. But also I feel like I'm treating them, even if they're a first time actor or like super experienced, I'm treating them like a colleague, you know, like a peer mm-hmm. as opposed to like a lot of actors, I think get nervous that they're just, you know, also plugged into this machine that's already running and they don't want to get in the way, but I want to make them feel like they're like a part of the team, you know? There is that Judith Weston trick, which I feel like I've talked about way too many times here. But it's like, if you don't know what words to say to motivate your actor, you know, to get them in the headspace, all you know is like the emotion that you're trying to get. Like you want the scene to be happier. Like you said, you want um, this couple who, or you want these two people to be friends and then not be friends, um, you know, after this line. Um, she says, like, if you can't find the right words to use, the right kind of action directing words, just tell them, like, you you want them to be mad, but you don't want to tell the actor, like, oh, okay, now you're mad. Like, the best thing she says is just tell the actor to make the other actor mad. Oh, that's interesting. Try to make him laugh. Try to make her be happy. You know, like, literally, whatever you want them to do, just tell them to to try to elicit that emotion from the other actor. And it will kind of like get the gears in their brain going as, as to like how to get there, you know, so you don't have I to do that work. I think I've heard you say that before. <laughs> that is good advice, though. Yeah. It's yeah. like her like last ditch effort. Like if you don't remember the like seduce him and walk him in, then all those action verbs that she's like really into. I- I'm allergic to the pageantry of it. Like I am a real results oriented guy. And if like your reason for not giving a certain type of note to an actor is because it's not like the type of note a good director gives. I'm mm-hmm. like, fucking get over it. If it is like a 30 second commercial and you need the cashier to say the line in a certain cadence, I will, I'll do a line read. My aversion to line reads is like, if you're, if it's an actor doing a bigger, like multiple episodes or has like a full arc and it needs to be a cohesive performance if all of the actors are just like mimicking the director it feels less organic well so i think what what i'm really hearing and i think the podcast kind of really reminds me that's a thing i learn over and over again is it's really just like how do you diagnose what language does each performer speak and sometimes it's going to be really easy to to kind of short circuit things and sometimes they're not going to respect you if you you know do x y or z or whatever and so it's just kind of like the sooner you can figure out what sort of performer they are, the faster you can get to the results that you're looking for, I, I, I think is the bottom line. Yeah, I, I think that's that's extremely well put. Lauren, you had a question for Tony that was going to kick off this big conversation. Yes. And we, we've already started unraveling the thread, but, but get us back on track. So we're going to talk about scene design. But before I, we talk about that, I just want to talk for like two minutes about website design. <laughs> because I went to your website today and oh, yeah. I was shocked by what I saw. Is it? <laughs> it it basically is the website oh. of a man who has made it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious because I think you did have a website. I think I went to your website, you know, a year, a couple of years ago. I don't know. You, you used to have like some work, some commercials, a trailer or something from American Vandal, some yeah. other things. But now your website basically has your agent, your manager, your reps. I think that's about it. So I'm curious, like, how much you have to do with that? Or like, were you advised to do this? I wasn't advised to do this, but 
I realized like my commercial production company is excellent. They're better at curating what people look at than than I do. And I asked them if a website is is helpful and they're like, not for us. We want our sales reps going exactly to that. And then for like film and TV, they just they know American Vandal, they know Dave. If they haven't seen it, those are it's easy to just like IMDB and look it up. It's a little bit of a bummer that like some of the early short films that I'm like really proud of and that like people might have seen like your Space no Jam documentary like hey yeah yeah the Space or, or even, even your like, music say, videos yeah save that money or something where people could go like oh yeah he, he he directed that one I like that there's no like central place for that but it just was feeling uh, it ended up like feeling like at this point it's like it's entirely a vanity thing and if there's any chance that like if anything a commercial production company or an agency might look at something, see something they don't like, and maybe I could lose a job for it. Uh, so if the version that requires less work uh, mm-hmm. is the safer option, let's go with the easier option. I think that to your earlier joke and point, like at a certain point in your career, looking like you want the job becomes a pretty big detractor. Do you know what I mean? Seeming desperate, seeming thirsty seeming sweaty you know makes it seem like you're not in demand or you're not busy or you're not working on your own stuff or whatever right like and so once you're in demand anything you can do especially when it's easy to not seem so hungry for it so thirsty for it is good there's truth to that yeah yeah and and, i mean but he has this like obviously you go to TonyAscended.com, and it's got Three Arts Entertainment Management, CAA for film and TV, and Smuggler for commercial and music video. I guess my one question slash suggestion, maybe you have a good reason not to do it, but you could make Smuggler a link to your page on the Smuggler website. Oh, that's a good idea. Because then it's kind of sneaking your work in, but it's making sure they're curating it for you, you know? That's a Um, great idea. I'm going to do that. We wanted to talk about how you figure out how to shoot a scene. You know, you've done a mockumentary, a couple of mockumentaries now that you kind of had full control over the characters. You're one of the creators of the show, you know, the style. You probably were very privy to the budget and had to work within some limitations. You've worked on a bigger uh, network TV show where you're kind of working with a, an established look. And obviously, you've done commercials and music videos where you have. A decent budget, but not a lot of time. Um, and you have clients and agencies and other people, but also are hired because you're you and, you know, they want to see how you would shoot this commercial. So um, we thought we'd go one by one and kind of talk about how you approach, I, I guess, the visual approach and the tonal approach to how you shoot these different ones. So yeah, the seed design. Yeah. And, it's, and we're sort of walking through the spectrum in order, right? From like, the the most run and gun like the the idea of like no prep just see pick up a camera and see what happens to the other end is like everything you have a full previs animatic before you even get on set like those are the those are the extremes and, yeah. I, and I feel like I my my work my TV work is on the more spontaneous run and gun side by mm-hmm. by design relative um, to I've tv work or 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 just generally speaking i would say relative to t- uh, so the the mockumentary stuff is like the goal is to 
really stand apart from even the television mockumentary and subconsciously have our audience file it in with like reality and and premium documentary stuff that that they have seen mm-hmm. as uh, so, opposed to and i'm not putting words in your mouth but like the like modern family or the office those are right. quote-unquote mockumentary but like everyone like, knows those are like they're scripted those are the shows Chris, those are yeah. the christopher guest rules which is basically right. Verite, verite mm-hmm. coverage, and then you can cut to a confessional uh, interview, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and it's gone even more. Like Modern Family is just like it's pure sitcom, and then you can cut to an interview joke if you need it, and it really works because it just gives you another button to push. But but for us, we want to like really this the show that we're doing it's a take on the the last dance which is the the michael jordan documentary that came Mm -hmm. out so the last Mm -hmm. one was like a sort of take on the true crime documentary that's a a dick joke in a in a high school this is a premium sports doc but in the world of professional esports in each of those the coverage style is one where we have like really architected like establishing shots that get you into there and some like b-roll of people sitting stoically and thinking and all of the the toolkit that you would have in a premium documentary but the actual scene work should feel like the cameraman had no idea what was going to happen and from what we've seen i feel like multi-cam scene work feels more reality tv mm-hmm. and mockumentary like the cross coverage style so we tend to do a, a single cam style and the way you cut a single cam documentary is like stealing reactions it's a, it's a lot it can be way more profile and it's way more jump cutty and the idea is like a one minute scene that you're watching in our show the idea is that this was a, a 45 minute conversation that the editors have have cut down into a one minute scene. So we don't tell our camera operators. So my shot list for a four page scene, that's just like all verite scene work would just be like pivot point is what we call it. It's two cameras and they'll go wherever we, so I don't shot list it at all. I don't even do a rehearsal take. I'll just let them go. And have uh, they seen a blocking rehearsal? They have not seen a blocking rehearsal. Have they read the um, script? They've read this, but we do like the improv first. We'll do the fat version first. And because the m- most like awkward real moments are found in those early takes. Uh, and then the, most of the usable stuff is in the, the later takes. But you can find if it's ever feeling too scripted, you can go back to those early takes where the cameraman had no idea where they were going. It's a, eight minute version of a mm-hmm. you know they're stuttering people scene. are talking on top of one another all of that stuff yeah 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 that's so exciting and we and we i think feel like we've talked about this a little bit on the show before but i guess who knows what is going to happen where the actors are going to stand and what they are going to say before you roll on that first take they need to have the bare minimum information before they're like tony what are we doing here and that that like Tony, what are we doing? Will happen once a day. Where mm-hmm. I'll find out I haven't given them enough information. I'm like, no, you're just 
you're you're here, you're going to walk over here and you'll have a conversation and something will happen. That might change, but then the camera ops might find themselves backed into a corner and they're mm-hmm. in some awkward angle that actually ends up looking really good. And then in middle takes, we might like adjust to like correct for that. But then in later takes, sometimes I've been like, no, I like that like awkward mm-hmm. cramped angle we had. It felt it felt very real. And are um, they all they have a zoom lens usually? Yeah, but both cameras have a zoom. So what we do is we have two cameras and it's supposed to when you're watching it, it's supposed to feel like it's one camera, but it's two cameras sitting uh, like hugged close to each other. And one of them is a little bit, we call it the the more left brain. And it's just like coverage, punching in occasionally to singles, but you're like tracking who's who's speaking. And the other camera is like drifting more to uh, tighter and reactions and hands and things that they're looking at and giving us more. Cut the artsy because again it's like supposed to be like a 40 minute conversation mm-hmm. cut down to to a minute so we would have all of that stuff if we were filming for 40 minutes and we're just like stacking the deck by giving us that that second camera and then it's a challenge in the edit not to like abuse it by cutting from camera a to camera b in real time because that will feel not like you're stealing a reaction from something else, but it'll feel like there are two cameras there and you need like bumps and continuity to feel like mm-hmm. it's jumping, jump cutting like a documentary. So that has like a really unique coverage style. That's like prepared chaos that we mm-hmm. had like long philosophical conversations before going into it. Uh, and then, but now, now that once you're like up and running, it's just kind of like, all right, this is a pivot point scene. Um, so do you have a shot list though? We do. We do, but it'll be like, <clears throat> it's just basically, it could be a six page scene and the shot list will just be like a non-sync establishing. So mm-hmm. it's basically. Non-sync means no audio. Yeah. We do record audio, but it won't be synced to the, so it'll be like the camera recording before they started talking. So if it's a t- scene at the dinner table, it's just like them talk, talking, standing up around the dinner table and maybe like one character's missing so that like you could see that and then cut into the scene. So it feels you have a little to stage bit more that. like we have. Yeah, right? I, do, I stage. I stage like, you, like there can't be water bottles and there can't be like people holding yeah, scripts sure. and all that stuff. For sure. But that's pretty much it for like the scene work is mm-hmm. like you have that one look and then everything else is just single camera or like this what is supposed to be in theory a single camera pass of this whole scene can you talk a little bit about like how you approach lighting and art direction when you don't know where you're gonna look we have those conversations early in prep where you're like the world needs to almost almost always be dressed 360 360. and if, if there is a real financial reason why that's impossible. We can certainly like, can we shoot this scene 270? Can we shoot this scene where we're only looking one direction? And we can have like, you got to be pr- pragmatic and know how to stretch a dollar. So sometimes we will do that in a, in a location, but like the expectation 
is that you're going to be lighting the world and seeing 360. And lighting um, from the ceiling, like no stands? 270. There, mm-hmm. There's there's stuff behind us where, you know, you're avoiding certain lights and stuff. But And I imagine also but, there's probably some post paint outs and stuff as well, right? Like you, you clean up stands every once in a while if you end up seeing one, or is that a rare For sure. Thing? And then sometimes, like, if you, if you see a little bit, you're like, okay, well, they would probably, like, sure. if you could buy them lighting the world. And the other thing, too, is, like, it's nice in ours that we have, I was talking about like the really nice like B-roll shots and the interviews and stuff that are really well lit. It's nice. Part of what makes ours feel like a real documentary is cutting from the the lit like mm-hmm. cinematic B-roll, which is all shot listed, and then cutting to the the scene work that is super raw and unlit. And there's something kind of dramatically compelling about like seeing the establishing shot be way more beautiful than mm-hmm. the most dramatic moment emotionally in your movie. That feels well, like kind of awkward and weird coverage. It makes it feel authentic, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you yeah, the yeah. the language is like here's the stuff that we prepared and here are the things that we kind of caught on the fly. And what's yeah. what I love about it is that, you know, everyone has worked so hard and trained so hard to make things seem effortless. And you have put a ton of obstacles in their way so that you see the effort. You're showing your work. You're feeling footsteps as a camera moves to to catch something that they didn't realize was coming. Right. Like like you were saying before of like that feeling of like someone saying like Tony, what are we doing here? Right. That's that's evidence that you have intentionally built a scenario that's so hard for them that they can't make it seem seamless, which is the thing that they are best at doing. Exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> because then you're giving, then you're giving the camera ops, the objective to like, it's not giving them to the objective of like, Hey, make it look shittier than you normally would. Mm-hmm. It's like, do the best that you can. And cause that's what real documentary Right. You know, photographers do. They're trying to get the best coverage possible. There's just only so much you can do when you don't know what's going to happen in front of you. So that's that's why it's. Uh, yeah. But you're also more familiar. Yeah. But you're also like, I mean, you're trying to backlight, right? You're trying to like get like. No, no. They're trying to backlight. Tony's yeah, trying to make them stand in front of the light on accident. No. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, but and the, and the camera op will be like. The the idea is that the camera the camera op would want to stand in the part of the room with the best light and might even like be like hey guys can if you're gonna talk can you have this convert I believe they do that in making a murder no, or sure. they do that in the last you know like sure. hey if you're going to have this conversation can you do it over here where the lighting is better. Uh, and we just kind of have that internal logic that, like, would a documentary crew be able to ask somebody to do X, Y, and Z? Right. Because, yeah. I mean, I've seen American Vandal, and that's, like, a good-looking show, you know? Like, it, 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 it totally captures the aesthetic of these kids shooting it on their own. But, it, you know, even in the second season, I think you guys acknowledge it. You're like, oh, you know, Netflix gave us all this money, so we can, like, we got a drone. We got mm-hmm. all this other stuff, you know? Um, yeah, but that's, like, that's... 
if you watch the Jinx, which is a you know a big mm-hmm. reference, it's like the Jinx looks fucking incredible, but then some of the Verite stuff looks super raw and unplanned. And next to the the cinematic recreations and the B roll and the interviews, the disparity in production value between the different types of media is what makes it feel so dockish. And that's something we lean into. Right. But do you still take that footage and bring it to company three and grade and do the best grade? Yeah, that's because that's what they do, right? Like they take, it's minimal lighting or no lighting. And then it still looks pretty great because you have the world's best colorist taking this verite footage of Robert Durst walking through New York City with uh, a DP who doesn't know where he's going to go. He doesn't know the blocking, but they can correct it in post. And like setting those limitations and obstacles with us on the production end and then trying in earnest to make it look the best that it can is more true to like the documentary process than like what we felt was the pitfall of the mockumentary is like Mm -hmm. having something well lit looking good, but like let's degrade the camera and like see the, the boom mic and then Mm -hmm. have like some of the actors spiking the camera. It's like good documentaries. Now cut all of that shit out of the documentary. They're a good documentary. A bad mockumentary is adding flaws to look more like a documentary and a good documentary is doing everything it can <laughs> to try to feel point. like a movie, like it's mm-hmm. not a documentary. And right. we want to, that's, that's our, our kind of philosophy. Yeah, man. I, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about like what a uh, good quote unquote is right. Like uh, I'm always trying to think of like, what, what are the philosophies that guide this project? What, what is our standard? What, do, what means, the things look good or bad. Right. And I think that it starts in prep, but I think like getting a team on board with understanding what you're aiming for, even when it's against their instincts is kind of the name of the game with directing. Do you know what I mean? And and sometimes you, you just have to like keep them from doing what they naturally want to do. They naturally want to light it. So it looks as quote unquote mm-hmm. beautiful as possible or any of that stuff. And I, I guess, um, to me, I've just been obsessed lately with the idea of like, how do you get people to understand that, you know, a really well exposed image isn't necessarily good or bad. It's just like what you were trained to think is good. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that's right for the project. Right. And it, yeah, it depends from project to project, which I think is a, is maybe a good segue for Vandal. It really and and players it's like these big high level conversations where it's it's tough talking to a production designer or like a wardrobe and and like hey i know like we want to come up with a color palette because that's Mm -hmm. like that's the most aesthetically pleasing to thing to look at but you know a, a real high school doesn't have a production designer and we need to throw some stuff in that's like awkward and if the audience feels like Hey, this doesn't seem like a like a real TV show because I'm mm-hmm. seeing too many like ugly shirts with logos. Then mm-hmm. you're like, all right, yeah, we need more of that sort of thing. And you have those that question of, as you said, like the consensus of what is good. And as a director, it is your job to even if you can't convince everybody that that is good, they need to 
understand why that is right for a given project. But on TV, to switch to Dave, as the director, I was not that person that is explaining to the crew what is right and what is not right. Like, And I don't know if this is the same with all TV shows, with all creators, but Dave Bird is a genius, and he's as as hands-on as any creator will ever be. It, it is his show, and he's telling me what is good. And he's telling he has like an incredibly close relationship with our cinematographer, Brian Lannan. Uh, and they're constantly trading images and references and talking about, about films. So those films and references and, and Google docs are, are coming my way. And you have a history with him too, obviously. Of course. Yeah. And, and I get, Certainly, his sense of humor and pacing and performance and tone. It's interesting to work on two seasons with his show because, uh, you know, I came on early enough that in in season one, I feel like I was a part of like really gelling the look and feel of the show and getting the show on its feet. And then by the time I came back for season two, I had one of the later blocks and I would like I would come in and I would have my shot list and like how I thought a scene was going to block and I would have like overhead sometimes of like okay he'd come from here and here and it would be just like just it would be a starting point for mm-hmm. Dave and the actors and the cinematographer to be like okay that's nice but what if instead of coming to the table mm-hmm. they went to the couch and like all of that work they're so good at this point and the two camera ops, Andy and John, would be like, okay, yeah. And then I'll come over here, and then my two-shot becomes a one-shot. And they're just – they have mm-hmm. this muscle. It was like – it was cool to watch. And I will admit it was like almost as a spectator uh, sure. when it came to like my shot list. Can but I it's ask- interesting. No, sorry. sorry. Go ahead, you, you got a good uh, – important question. How did it feel, Tony? Personally, uh, a little embarrassing, a little embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it helps. It's so validating to hear a- you say that, Tony. And I think it genuinely <laughs> I want people to hear it because I think we've all felt that sometimes of just like, dang, yeah. like you don't want to get in the way. But like you want to be helpful, you want to be helpful. But you're like, hey, I'm I'm good at this. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> sorry, keep going. At that point, it's like, and then you're looking at like the gaffer and the key grip. And you're like, these guys probably think I'm a fucking <laughs> hack because I'm just like getting in your way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. but then you just got to remember what you are good at. And it's like, it's really knowing Dave's voice, understanding the characters, understanding what the show needs, understanding the macro of the story. Like they have all of these other episodes and I'm like, yeah, but this, this scene really needs to set up for this next scene. Like talking to the writers a lot, like just Mm -hmm. knowing, knowing where, where you are useful. And it's not like I was, you're not getting steamrolled, uh, obviously. I'm not, you know, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not irrelevant in the in <laughs> sure, the, in sure. the shot progress, but I I am probably the fifth most um, between. It's uh, Dave is the most important voice, then Brian, mm-hmm. um, the DP, and then from Brian, it's the two camera ops where they start doing the math of like the coverage sure. in their head. So my shot, because we also don't have time. They also have a sense of efficiency that's really incredible. Mm-hmm. Where like this, the two becomes the master here, 
but who's figuring out the blocking? Is that you or Dave? Uh, Like for them to figure that the two becomes a master, you need to know where people are standing in the room, right? Yeah. So that is the big blocking rehearsal. And that blocking rehearsal can take anywhere from five minutes to 20 minutes and figuring out how it goes. And, and I think it's Dave, Dave, I present what I think (laughs) is the first step. And then, and you've already showed the DP Brian and stuff. What, where you want to put the camera, right? No, no. I, I present what I think for blocking. And then in that blocking, I'm like, and I think we would shoot it, you know, this is basically how the, the cover mm-hmm. should be. But does light, like, but how does lighting play into that? Like, we haven't gotten there yet. This all, like, they've been shooting episodes while I've been tech scouting. So we have a sense of how things are going to go. But when there's not enough time for there to be, like, we've tech scouted enough to know that we're shooting in a general direction in this room, most likely. Uh, but, we're really figuring it out in in the moment mm-hmm. in this is in this blocking rehearsal and anything can change and that's i think that's partially because dave like when he's with the actors and acting out the scene it's no longer theoretical in a in a tech scout and dave is on all of the tech scouts as well but it's really like oh i wouldn't do this she wouldn't do this like i would sit down here I don't like this. This is the most important part of the scene to me. I don't want to be like, you shouldn't (laughs) in profile wall or like Dave has all of those things. And then those notes from my blocking, then Brian translates with Andy and John to figure out the, the arithmetic of how to fill in all the gaps of the coverage. It's just so crazy because I feel like, People that are listening that have not seen Dave might not realize it. Like from the way you're talking, it sounds like, okay, I have a general idea. We come in, we figure it out. But like the show does not look like it was figured out on the spot. It's like the compositions are beautiful. The lighting's like incredible. You know, like you have really nice wide shots. You have like incredible steady cam shots and walk and talks. Like you did an episode, I think it was yours with Gator and Dave and um, or not maybe Gator, but the uh, his friend that's like the producer, the music producer. Where oh, they're, Benny. yeah, Benny, where it's like a wonder, like in the recording studio, like kind of just these long, really well thought out, planned out shots that don't seem like you just like come up with them on the spot, you know? Oh, I definitely have a hand, a handful of them. And uh, a few of them made the finale of season one. But for the most part, that's like, Dave will be like, no, the scene plays better if you just cut into the 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 single here and really the idea for a oneer is just something where uh brian will be like okay yeah i like the idea for the oneer but instead of doing this i'm gonna do this and you do talk about that stuff on a tech scout yeah like you do no know, one's surprising someone with a oneer right i guess it's like the blocking rehearsal is like instead of sitting down on this line you're sitting down on this line and you right know, but let's oh, say you wanted to do table, like a Dutch angle, you know, and you want to rotate as Dave sits up on a couch or something. And a random example, but something where you would need a piece of equipment, you know, to do the camera yeah. move or 
um, a lighting cue or something, you know? I mean, we have a pretty full truck. So like there was one where I'm like, oh, we might want to do like a really long, a, a zoom, a slow servo zoom that goes to like 250 or something. And we talked about getting that lens. Ultimately, the, those are like conversation starters. But in my episodes, we haven't done anything really too far. We got a different like lens kit for there's the the jail music video in the finale of, mm-hmm. of season one that has like an entirely different aesthetic. And like, that was a section where we storyboarded. Um, but that's because it like was supposed to look different than the rest right. of the show. You did one of my favorite episodes where he has the flashback to when they're pitching like Mountain Dew. Is that? Yeah. yeah that was fun. Yeah, man, that show. I, I think that show is so good. You are listening. You haven't seen it. You should check it out. Thank you. Thank you. When you do see a scene like that servo zoom example you have or a wonder, like, how do you look at the script and decide like, oh, this would be a cool zoom shot? Like, like, how do you design the scene from the script? You know, I mean, it's that's a that's a gut thing, right? Like, like, do you sit, do you have a printed out script and you write notes on it and you're like, hmm, how can we make this cooler or more interesting or capture this feeling? Yeah. Yeah, you have a you have scriptation and you jot stuff down and you just I have an iPad and you, you I go through it a few times and you're like could this be cool could this be cool and often even before going to Brian I'll be like what do you think of like a big one for the scene uh, Dave is super ambitious with the look of the show and sometimes he'll champion certain things like this but sometimes he's like no this scene needs to be super funny here so it sounds like you know we talked a lot about the blocking rehearsal right but if Dave is on the tech scout right and you're having a handful of like teeny tiny conversations whether it's like catching someone at lunch or like shooting them a text or whatever it sounds like it evolves right it's not like you mm-hmm. sit alone do your scriptation notes and then show up on the day and you're like, this is what I was thinking. Right. So it's, it's, I think yeah. it's, it's incremental, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. I, I probably understand because there is the text out there is, they're not blindsided by like, Whoa, you want us to shoot in the mm-hmm. kitchen and we're shooting mm-hmm. in the living room. It's more when I talk about like, I'm presenting my version of the scene. It's like, I think, I act out what the characters are doing in real time. Whereas the text guy is like, all right, this is a scene that happens with them mm-hmm. watching TV. We should, we should be prepared to light this way to light this way and to have like a master out here. And then you, right. and then they'll talk to the, the G and E and make sure we are. And, and you could that, even be like, I was thinking, like I, I was thinking, Oh, this is where it could be really cool to shoot this with something special. Exactly. Like, this is where yeah, a long lens to be like a long, a long yeah, yeah. tracking shot. I want like, we're going to need a steady cam for this. Cause I want to come from this room mm-hmm. to this room. Like those are things that are discussed, but there's still a tremendous amount that is like figured out when the actual actors are in the space right. or in that blocking rehearsal. Right. Awesome. Well, I think it's like, there's always, there always has to be the room for a little bit of spontaneity, right? You made the point mm-hmm. of like, there's a reason why your truck doesn't have cherry picked exactly every single little piece of gear that you need. You've got, a good number of toys so that when someone is like, wait a minute, what if, wouldn't it be better if this happened or, you know, that you have the chance to pivot a little bit, it sounds like. Exactly. exactly. And you know what? I think a part of that is you have Jeff Schaefer, who is the showrunner of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he did like the show, The Leap. Like 
that is a show that's like just based on improv and like let's just let the characters do the work and not get precious about the Mm -hmm. look like super unpretentious like let's just be the funniest show possible and the best way to do that is just like two cameras cross coverage you know that way any joke any piece of improv can cut together and dave is like no this needs to be the best show on television it can't look like a you know it, it mm-hmm. can't look like Curb Your Enthusiasm. It has to be. It has to be elevated and and artistic. And he's like, he'll have watched some new French movie that week. That he's like, why doesn't our show look as real as this? And he's coming <laughs> with stuff like that. It's these two opposite forces that are like Jeff Schaefer. Like, let's make the most cogent story with the funniest character reactions that we possibly can based with this like ambition to also have this higher level of this higher aesthetic and this sort of blocking rehearsal happy medium is what allows the actors to generate but also have this higher look like that's why the show kind of nets out where it does i don't know if you look at something like it's crazy how good like euphoria looks. Everything must just be like completely architected because it can't account for too much like improv and they're not cutting jokes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Before we pivot away from Dave, yeah. I want to ask, it sounds to me like a, a big takeaway about this conversation is that clearly your showrunner/star his filmmaking vocabulary, his visual acumen, his understanding of filmmaking in general you've watched it sort of evolve right he started off as a super funny super talented super ambitious rapper right youtube person, rapper, yeah. YouTube rapper comedy right? rapper comedy rapper and now is is running you know this lauded show on television right and so you're mm-hmm. seeing him the effects of him watching that french movie every single weekend or whatever besides him becoming more prescriptive it sounds like Are there other things you've noticed about the way that he's changed as an artist? He's always had the same ambition and like the idea of releasing something before it's, it's absolutely perfect is like impossible to him. And I, I think that's like, that's the reason for his success. But, you know, I know personally, like he looks back at some of his early work and, and cringes at it. Like all of us do, we all kind of go through that trajectory his level of belief in himself as an artist uh allows him the confidence to like go to a brilliant cinematographer like brian lannan and have the confidence to be like i just watched this film last weekend why isn't our show why doesn't our show look (laughs) this good it's like kind of an insane thing to say but it like is constantly forcing them to have these conversations and Dave learns from those conversations. I think Brian feels emboldened to like fight the line producer on certain Mm -hmm. things like, no, Dave needs this. He's, uh, I imagine it's an incredibly stressful show for, for Brian (laughs) because You know, from the top. I thought you were going to say for the line producer. (laughs) Well, for the line producer too, they'll be like, why why do we need all of these things for what's supposed to be a sitcom about a a, a rapper with a small dick? I've learned so much. Like I said earlier that he's my Tyler Durden and 
Yeah, there, there are some times in like on my show we'll, where I'll have a conversation with the network and the studio and I'll channel my inner Dave Bird because you're like, you, you got to do what is right for the project. Like you owe it to your crew who wants to get a second season, who, you know, everybody's put their blood, sweat and tears through the cruel hours that you have on set so that like, if I'm not going to fight for this little detail in post, it's like, mm -hmm. it's a disservice to the whole team. And I've been really inspired by his crazy mind and his relentlessness. I think on that note, let's maybe segue to our final type of project you would design, which, you know, we're talking about short form stuff, maybe a commercial. I think on Dave, A, you have this like powerhouse creative force that is, you know, running the show and you're trying to fit in to that and support that. And like you said, you have the TV show. So you have crew, an existing crew. You have trucks with all the gear you would ever want. You need a dolly, you need a crane, you need whatever you kind of have it. But when you're doing a one day shoot, a two day shoot commercial, you need to tell them exactly what you need and they will get just exactly what you need. And you are probably pretty much the person that's saying where we're putting the camera, what we're doing, what people are wearing, what the art direction looks like. But unlike your own TV show, it's a situation where you have clients. You don't have the final say. You're expected to make a decision on every single aspect of the production, but you can get overridden on some things. Can you tell us a little bit? Uh, I don't know if you want to choose like a recent project you did or just in general. I don't talk generally because I'm envious of like a director who could go and do a director scout and just kind of do a storyboard off of a location scout and pictures and stuff. I find that I really need to be in the space when I can, but it's, it's money. It's maybe another day from the, the cinematographer. And a lot of times the cinematographer is not going to be at, like, you get them for the tech scout and the shoot. But for me, I really like to do the location scouts, you pick your location. And then early on, like a week ahead or four days ahead, at least from the tech scout, I like to do a separate director scout with the cinematographer uh, where we do like our own photo boards and uh, allow somebody who is often smarter than me, the, a cinematographer who has a a, a better eye for stuff like this. That's the the spot where he can go and be like, well, what if the camera did this instead? Or <laughs> what if instead of the... And also the time, you know, like like having the time to do that with someone where there's not a bunch of people waiting around and your AD is like, okay, well, the parking is going to be here or whatever. Like, are we good to go to the next location? Like some, just yes. like no one's breathing down your neck. You can just like get into the groove and take as long as it takes, you know? And do you bring like a stand in with you or you just producers? Yeah, there, there's so many pictures on my phone of just of me sitting in certain, you know, acting things out. Yeah. And a lot of times, too, like you had to get the location approved before that and everything. So like the storyboards have already started because like client needs to sign off on those before mm -hmm. like and i'm doing these like photo boards after we've already done the storyboards but uh for me as, as somebody who needs to like be in the space and i know it's different from director to director but i'm a much more like process oriented director and that's how i you know came up with the idea of like how we would shoot american vandal is very much like process oriented as opposed to like i'm visualizing it in my head mm -hmm. i need to be like in the space 
with a cinematographer who's like kind of helping me walk through that stuff for me to have like a, a really like high end final vision of what a commercial could look like. So because I kind of know my limitations and know that like the best version of the commercial isn't going to be something that I draw up based off of a single like location scout. I need to make up for that by like finding a cinematographer who is maybe not their first choice, but it's like, Hey, but we can get him four days earlier for my director scout. And I'm telling you that's going to be so worth it in the long run. So that's my, that's my only really insight into the more dedicated, like architected storyboarded type of stuff is leaning on on people who have a little bit more of that that skill set well and also insisting on building the space to to get there tony you're being really modest but i think that like it feels like there's kind of two different schools of thought there's the like auteur i'm a genius and you just do exactly what i say and it's going to be awesome and there are those people out there but like anytime i've watched one of those people work i know that they're missing out on the awesome things that their other crew members could have brought to the table if you built the space for it whether that's getting an additional day in the space with your collaborators and figuring it out together or or on a tech scout with your showrunner like finding building in those opportunities to kind of play a little bit and experiment in low stakes environments i think is is a really valuable takeaway actually. And it's easier said than done, right? Sometimes you don't get that extra day out of your cinematographer or they're not free or whatever, but like, no, um, I guess for that, unfortunately, I like it's maybe 50, 50, as much as I'm like, that's, this is the only way I work. I need this director scout. Like that's normally how I go in. And quite often it's like, no, you gotta, you gotta do the storyboards. And like the first time you're in the space with your cinematographer is the tech scout. That does, that happens very frequently and you have to do it. But it's just like what I tell the world my process is, is this other version. (laughs) Cause I know that's the best way to, to make something. I'm curious though, like how important is it for you to shoot it in a way that hasn't been done before? That's like not the obvious way, you know, like to avoid like wide shot, close up, close. Or does it just depend on the project? It really does depend on the project. Like. I don't necessarily go into a commercial and be like, I I need to shoot this in a way that's never been done before. Or this might sound pretentious, but when I, when I think of my voice, I I think the people who like my stuff laugh at the same things that I laugh at. And I don't really apply it much more beyond that. Like I don't really think of like, and it's because of this shooting style or, yeah, it, it really is. I like what I like. And if this is the version that makes me laugh the most, I assume that people who have responded to my work in the past will continue to respond to that. You could find common threads between any two works of art. You could find common threads between Dave and, and American Vandal. But really, like, it's somewhat freeing to just go, I, I want to make each choice as like the choice I would enjoy the most if I was uh, in the audience. That's pretty much it. Most of your stuff, like the camera is moving a lot, right? Except for maybe like these interviews, the interview segments and the mockumentary stuff. Like is is camera movement something you think a lot about? For the mockumentary stuff, it's about like realism is what makes the jokes the funniest and what makes the character Mm -hmm. turns the most 
compelling. Dave is a really case-by-case thing where a lot of times like a, an artful move can keep you in it. There's a lot of like back and forth banter where if I'm being really precious about trying to keep some sort of oneer, I'm just limiting like what is going to be better as like Gata, Dave, Gata, Dave, Gata, Dave. I really do try to like look at every scene as like, what is the version of this scene I would most like to watch? and go from there me make me think of there was one time maybe it was on the show maybe not but like you were talking about the number of likes on instagram posts from high school kids and that sort of detail is very funny to me it was like people were making like an editor at compton something that was like oh two thousand likes on you know whatever a turd burglar post or something and you were like no it needs to be 47 you yeah. know, <laughs> or whatever, yeah, like high like, school viral or something like that, right? Yeah, the the American Vandal goes viral within the world of this show. And I'm like, but for us, viral is like fifth on our videos and mm-hmm. like was a staff pick on Vimeo and got like 70,000 views. I love the, the more grounded, real version of it. Like the audience isn't going to be less engaged in that story beat because it's 70,000 views versus a half a million views. We all right. know it's fictional. If you're telling us that 70,000 views is big in this world, the more you can kind of steer away with, from a scene where a boss is a dickhead. Well, what's like the most subtle version of how big of a dickhead he is? And if you read it and like it feels too familiar, like I just have like a a, a sense of when stuff is feeling like too familiar and mm-hmm. finding other ways to like preserve what the point of the scene is without resorting to stuff that is too familiar. I think what I've done is developed a confidence in my sensibility for like "Mm, that's not right that doesn't ring true and i i'm increasingly less like enamored but when everybody around video village is like oh that was great like nah but there's still something that's like not right to me about this performance something still feels a little tired i do think i have like when you get to the edit you have a i have a pretty good batting average of like yeah see the scene still works without that like really obvious reaction shot there is like a certain kind of confidence and also just instinct to run away from the the hollywood fakeness of things Mm -hmm. like even you know even like a modern family which is like one of the greatest comedies of all time like we talked about how it's made there's a falseness to it which is is fine right it's not important for that show but like i do think that that's interesting and avoiding those tropes like Matt was asking earlier, like, how do you make good stuff? And I think that's it. We have these like just obvious things that we can do at every time. And it's like trying to not do the obvious thing every time. And there's a little bit of a balance because it's not like my stuff is completely void of mm-hmm. tropes or archetypes. I just have a particular taste of like this stuff reads too tired and to Hollywood to me. And this stuff makes me laugh and it is funny. And I, you just try to steer it in the direction of, of my taste. And I, I've grown a little bit more confident in that, like, if I'm really responding to it and I think this is a good version, I, I, I found that it's connected with people and that, like, that's a, 
that's a fun uh, a fun thing to to kind of snowball and and it allows me to channel my my Dave Bird who just <laughs> has that inherently right he's right. always like what I'm creating is a masterpiece and it's not until like five years later where he's like oh maybe that wasn't a masterpiece but the next <laughs> thing is going to be a masterpiece it, it is helpful to have that sort of assurance when you're when you're making making the decisions. Yeah, but I think the reason American Vandal is such a success and like won a Peabody and all that stuff is like there are a, a thousand bad versions of that show, right? Like the pitch is good. Like it's, you know, we're skewering, you know, true crime, making a murder, the jinx, whatever. But it's these kids draw dicks on the principal's car or whatever instead, right? Like you could see the really bad version. But then you cast a guy, you know, as the lead that is like so sympathetic and is like, He's kind of exactly what you think he is, but he's also totally not, you know, like every obvious thing he would do, he doesn't do, you know? And, and so I think it's like, it's those details that make something watchable. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't expect that, but it does make sense now that I think about it. That's nice of you to say. I appreciate that. Well, Tony, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming back. How can people see your show, your next show? When's it coming out? It's on Paramount Plus and it comes out. I think we just got a date and it's June 16th. So, Hey, congrats, man. That's exciting. Oh, yeah. We had another Paramount Plus uh, filmmaker on here that I think you were the EP of his show. Oh, yeah, that's that's right. Did you have Mike and Jackson or just yeah. Mike? Yeah, we had Mike and Jackson. Yeah, yeah, they're the best. I love both of those guys. I would recommend everybody go to to Minden, Ontario. And, <laughs> uh, that's a it's a cute time. And then watch for heaven's sake on there Paramount you go. Plus. But you get but the also, the most out of your subscription this way. Yeah, right? but wait wait to sign up for Paramount Plus until Players comes out, so we get mm-hmm. them up for that. Mm-hmm. And then once you're done watching Players, then go back and watch. Sure. Yeah, uh, you, for heaven's sake. Are you allowed which to tell us? Directed by an editor on players really good at oh cool tim johnson are you allowed to tell us who's in players or anything else or is it kind of the big a-list talent on players is riot games they're allowing us to come into their world and Mm -hmm. use league of legends which is the biggest uh video game for you know the biggest esport in the world uh we're shooting in the arena with all of their casters and uh so that's that's I mean that's pretty day, awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. It's yeah, that's cool. a level of authenticity that like anytime, you know, like you have to cut to like a fake video game or whatever, you're like, well, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, this is not. Come on, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz yeah. then our jokes can be so much sillier and you're like mm-hmm. still invested, but like if the right. video game becomes a joke, then the character yeah. stakes like winning the championship kind of becomes a joke and uh it's cool to like actually have something that feels like a sport that you know in success of american vandal you're like oh this is this is a funny joke that's like kind of a sketch premise and then mm-hmm. by episode two you're like i really want to know who drew this. like the engine is actually the mystery and i think it's like in success players are going to be the same thing where you're like all right where is a sports doc making fun of like gamer nerds and by episode two you're like god i hope the bot lane gets it together because cream <laughs> cheese and organism both have so much potential you know <laughs> that's awesome well we can't wait to watch it do you mind hanging around for an unpaid endorsement real quick sure yeah unpaid endorsement so my unpaid endorsement is an instagram account 
called Night Lotion. Do you guys know mm-hmm. this this account? No. Um, I'll read you the bio. It is an account dedicated to women on TV applying lotion before bed. And it is just a montage of just like every time basically a character needs to be quote unquote going to bed, but like needs a little bit of business just like to stall, just like get a plot point out. And so like in real life, normally they just like be like, okay, good night and turn off and go to bed. Night lotion is just like the weird, weird trope of in television of women putting on lotion all the time. Uh, so Instagram.com slash night lotion. Tony, what you got, buddy? Just finished uh, Pam and Tommy, which mm-hmm. I thought was really, really well done. Heartbreaking. Such a fascinating character study that leaves you with so many conflicting feelings that I'm kind of working through myself. One of the editors, Eric Kisak, was just on the podcast and I ran into him a couple days ago and I was like, how much of that is true? Because we just finished watching it. And he's like, honestly, like 95%. I was like, oh, like the mob, you know, and the Andrew Dice Clay character that plays like the mobster. He's like, yeah, Butchie, he's a real guy. Like all the like the Seth Rogen character, everyone is like he said, the the details of the crime are like almost like exactly the same. Pam and Tommy. Orin, what you got, buddy? I'm also going to go with just very popular things to watch. I'm going to double down on Euphoria. Tony mentioned it. Yeah, it is hard to watch. Do not watch it with your parents. It's like very graphic and very extreme. And I think not at all like true to life in many ways, but there is like a naturalness. There's something just so like captivating about it. And the second season... And think story-wise, it's similar to the first season. But visually, I read that they wanted to to capture what it feels like to remember things, like memories. And they they switched from digital to film. Tony, we know if we want to find out more about you, we just go to TonyAscendant.com. Uh, <laughs> are you on Instagram? I'm on, yeah, T Ascenda on T Ascenda. Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow our show at Just Shoot It Pod across all social media. You can email us if you have any questions. You can forward them to Tony, just shoot it pod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think, how you design scenes, what your process is. You can find me on social media. I'm at Smitey Pileg on Twitter and at O Kaplan on everywhere else. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. And you're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.